do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Welcome to Hyros Gamos Radio, broadcasting out of the lower triangle, Tasmania, the descending tongue of grace. Adrift in the freezing waters of Mem, between mainland Australia and Antarctica. Howling like the hanged man, singing the 72 secret names of God. Our guest is one of Australia's most celebrated composers. His sacred marriage of music and magic has, for decades, challenged and delighted audiences around the world. Larry Sitsky. So this newfangled stuff works. (laughs) It sure does. (laughs) It's great to see you. Same here. (laughs) Yeah, it would be lovely to start to uh, talking about your early life. Uh, I heard that you were born in China and then later immigrated to Australia. And you've also got an interesting family heritage as well. So that would be a fantastic place to start. Well, let's begin there. When people ask me where I'm from, I usually say Canberra, and then they say, um, uh, and before that, well, then I say uh, Sydney. If they're still persistent, they'll go and say, oh, what about before that? It doesn't get them anywhere because then I say Brisbane. Uh, I know what they're fishing for. But the background is what I call a cultural salad. It's a real mess in a way. And it's very hard to explain because uh, Tianjin, which is in the north of China, uh, was just like a number of large Chinese cities. And they were melting pots of refugees from all over the place. There were a lot of Russian uh, emigres, a lot of them were Russian, but um, there were a lot of refugees from Europe as well. Um, Later on, after the Russian Revolution, refugees fleeing Europe, Jews coming from Germany and countries around it. So Tianjin, like Shanghai, was a really international city. And I didn't know this. I thought everywhere was like that. Uh, And I remember coming to Australia and being surprised that I was wrong. It wasn't like that at all. (laughs) But the city was split up into what was called concessions. And this meant that all the European powers, uh, um, at the point of a gun, um, took bits of a Chinese city and carved it up. So we lived in the French concession, and opposite us was the French police station, including gendarmes and funny hats, you know. um, But I went to school in the English concession, so you crossed the border, and there was an English soldier standing there with the big Busby hat. Um, No one said anything in normal times. The border was there, but no one bothered, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'd go to school, that was fine. Um, Somewhere in the late 30s, um, the Japanese began to cause trouble because there was a Japanese concession as well. And very quietly, they amassed troops 
in the Japanese concession. And one day, I was going to school. I must have been about six or something like that. And instead of the English soldier, there was a Japanese soldier standing there with a fixed bayonet. He said to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to school. This was in Chinese, yeah? He said to me, go home. Well, you don't argue with a guy with a gun with a bayonet. So I went home. Uh, so anyway, um, I went home and... I remember saying to my mother what happened, and she didn't seem at all surprised. She said, oh, so it's happening. They were waiting for it to occur, I think. Mm. And the Japanese took over the whole city. Not a shot was fired. And so we entered an era of Japanese occupation mm. from that day on. And, of course, World War II broke out soon after that. I was there throughout the Second War, uh, and we were occupied first by the Japanese, then by the Chinese Kuomintang, which is the nationalist army. That was Chiang Kai-shek's government. Then the communists came in um, because the civil war broke out. At some point, Mao Zedong said, you know, you Europeans, you've exploited China for all these years. And I think you should go back where you came from. And so then we were in a really tricky situation because we had a, we were stateless for most of our time. But at the end of the war, Soviet Russia said to all the emigres, oh, you know, this is, been a long time now since the revolution. Would you like a, a Soviet passport instead of being stateless? And everyone thought, yeah, it'd be good to have a passport instead of being stateless. Mm. Wrong move, because as soon as that moment happened, well, the logical place to go would be back to Russia. Yeah. And people like us would be regarded as white Russians enemies of the Soviet state, ah. I reckon it would be straight to a labor camp. Ah. So, scary moment. Yeah. Um, we started making the round of the embassies and to see which country would take us in. Australia came through first, which was fantastic. There was a hiccup we had to go to the, to the Soviet embassy and get them to approve us going to Australia because we were Soviet citizens, legally. Mm. And I remember they insisted on seeing us separately. So I had to go there. It was classic long corridor, big desk at the end a big guy in, in a military uniform with medals all over the place. It was just after lunch, I remember. He must have had a reasonable amount of vodka, so he was reasonably happy. <laughs> That's a good thing in this circumstance. <laughs> oh, God, yes. And he said, are your parents forcing you to go to Australia? 
I knew what he was fishing for. And I said, no, 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 it's, uh, uh, we're going because we feel that uh, we have some friends there and some distant relatives. And anyway, he was in a good mood, so he stamped the passport. The other hiccup was Mao Zedong wanted all Europeans out, but to get out, you had to have an exit visa. That was tricky as well, because you had to know who to bribe to get the exit visa. Anyway, we survived all that <laughs> and got on the ship. As it happened, uh, it was a very cold winter, and they had to have an icebreaker to uh, go in front of the ship to get out of the Yellow Sea. Mm. Um, but once the last Chinese soldier got off, we knew we'd made it. Mm. Uh, so we went to Hong Kong and from there to Darwin, mm. where it was a day more or less like here today. <laughs> it's 42 here today. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. <laughs> so that's how yeah. we got out. And a lot of people did the same. Yeah. Uh, they came to Australia, some went to Israel, some went to my grandparents, for instance, went to New York mm. uh, simply because their kids, my uncles, um, were living there then, and so it was easy for them to get a visa. We couldn't go because my brother uh, and I were on what the Americans called the Chinese quota. We were considered Chinese. Mm -hmm. The quota was about a hundred a year. Yeah. Now I remember going with my father to the American embassy and the usual rubbish, filling out forms. And, and then the clerk there behind the counter said, oh, you know, there's a long waiting list. Um, and my father knew where to get out. There wasn't a question of waiting. Mm. Uh, because if we didn't get a visa, it would be Mother Russia, you know. Yeah. So he said to the clerk, how long will it take? The guy said, five years. Come back in five years, which was ridiculous under the circumstances. So we're walking out slowly, and at the door, I'll never forget it, my father felt he wanted the last say. So he turned around and said to the guy, uh, five years, will that be morning or afternoon? <laughs> anyway, that was <laughs> that. Was that. Oh. So we didn't make it to New York. Yeah. But I'm very happy that we came here. Yeah. I've been grateful ever since. Of course, and uh, that's, a, that's a lot to be going through as a child. I mean, you've Well, my brother is five years younger than I am, yeah. so... He had to face up to this uh, major. He was 11. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, that's a big, uh, big scary thing for yeah, such yeah. a young age. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, that's just the way it was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, uh, yeah, you're here now and you've been here for quite some time. And you're 1951 we came wow. here. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then... You developed an interest in music. Can you tell us about how that came about? Was that in Australia that, that you 
started becoming interested? Uh, no, no, no. Um, I came from a, a family. Um, it wasn't unusual. People, part of people's education with our background, you know, Russian Jews um, uh, always interested in cultural matters. And so it was normal, it was in no way unusual for the kids to be given piano lessons. And so at some very early age, uh, I began to have piano lessons. My mother gave me my first few lessons uh, because she was an amateur pianist, but knew enough to get me going. And then I think she realized that a, I had perfect pitch, I was responding very quickly, and so I then went to a proper teacher. Uh, and they, I remember one of them, I uh, had two, two or three. And one of them, I remember, said to her, when they learned that we're going to Australia, they said, make sure he goes to a conservatorium of music, uh, because it's more than just... Uh, an interest. Uh, we think he's got potential. and So that's how it happened. So I came to Sydney. Um, I talked about hiccups earlier. Well, there were still a couple to overcome. When I was growing up and playing, giving little concerts at a ridiculous age, that was fine. You had a little child prodigy at home and it was good fun when visitors came. You'd amuse the visitors, and we played games like they'd play a note, and I'd be two rooms away, and I'd yell back E-flat. That was all fine. Hmm. When it became serious, they weren't that enamored. And uh, I was told that I had to have a proper profession. Being a musician wasn't. And, of course, being refugees, they wanted financial stability. Mm. And, well, we all know music's not exactly where you'd go for that. <laughs> um, so they persuaded me. There was a lot of pressure put on. I was 16, for God's sake. And I had done what's called the Cambridge University Overseas Matriculation. It's something you could do without being in Cambridge. Mm. It's a relic of colonialism. Mm. They had examiners, and you went to a place and did exams. Mm. And because the school I went to taught both Russian and English, I was fine. I could do the exams in English. So, um, and I got good grades in uh, maths, and science, I remember. So they said to me, look, you know, you should be an engineer or something. And anyway, against my kind of gut instinct, I went to Sydney University. I was accepted and did one year of engineering. It was the worst bloody thing I could ever have done. I hated the whole thing. Yeah. I was feeling just about suicidal oh. because I didn't want to do it. They were pressing me at home. I used to sneak out and go to concerts and 
things like that. <laughs> or even worse, instead of attending the math lecture, I would go to the music lecture, <laughs> which wasn't part of my curriculum. I'd yeah. sneak in. Anyway, end of year, inevitable. Um, I failed everything except one subject, which was engineering design, which was a bit creative, so it had some interest for me. Mm. I thought, all right, I've done it. They'll leave me alone now. Uh, but no, uh, it was, we want you to repeat the year. Go back and try it again. Well, we had a few really slinging matches, mm. uh, yelling at each other, and the whole box and dice. I finally realized that if I was going to be a musician, I had to stand my ground. Mm. And that's what I did. It took a while, you know, for them to accept it. And even when I was doing well, it took a while for them to grudgingly mm. kind of say, well, maybe... It was a good idea. I heard for years afterwards about my brother who did the right thing. My brother was in charge of technical training in the ABC. This was a real job, you see. What I had, even when I landed a proper job in a tertiary institution, it wasn't a real job. Yeah. I was still being a musician. <laughs> So, yes, um, now I look back and I think, well, it did test whether you really wanted to do it or not. Yeah, definitely. Uh, maybe a, a difficult way to be tested, but in the end, yes, it taught me to actually acquire a certain measure of self-belief, mm. uh, despite all the uh, associated noises going on. I think it's a um, very, it's actually quite a common story when it comes to, to creative types and families and others wanting them to get a, you know, say, a real job. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very common battle for people. I think a, a moral of this story is to, you know, stick to your guns and, and follow your dreams, really. Yes, it's about that. Um, but it was especially difficult because I knew why they were doing it. And I couldn't, part of me understood it. Mm. And then I did the course at the Sydney Con. And when I graduated, I think they thought, well, he's got it out of his system. And of course, what happened then was I wanted to go on. And my teacher at the Sydney Con arranged for me to go to study with a famous um, pianist uh, overseas. Mm. And so we had a kind of secondary wave of rows mm. about, you want to do what? You've already got a degree. What do you... Anyway, by then I'd learned. Mm -hmm. So it was a little easier. Yeah. Uh, but I went to study with Egon Petri, who was then in San Francisco, and uh, it's funny, in those days, you went by boat because it was cheaper than flying. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes, it's interesting, isn't it? That is interesting. That would never have occurred to me, actually, that that would actually be the case. <laughs> no, that's what it was. Yeah. 
flying was out of question, yeah. incredibly expensive. So I got on a boat and three weeks later got off in Los Angeles, uh, uh, sorry, San Francisco and was met there and yeah. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and also I think um, having that, that decision to, to go as well, I mean, not, not just for a musical career but for life experiences probably was actually a, a really positive, beneficial thing for you. Of course it was. Mm. Uh, for the first time, I was living on my own mm. and I was learning what it's like, you know. Mm. Uh, it was very valuable. Mm. Uh, and I was there from 58 till 61, mm. uh, studying with Egon Petri, who was, he was attached to the San Francisco Conservatorium, but uh, basically he taught from his house. Mm-hmm. You had to go there. Uh, and there there was, again, a, a test. If you were doing fine, he would really adopt you almost. Uh, I would come in. Uh, lessons could be, they might officially have been one hour. I was there often for three hours or more. Mm. Uh, and after a while, he said to me, How's your finance? And I said, well, the bank balance is dwindling rapidly. He gave me a scholarship. Oh, really? Wow. And, and if you were a good boy, you stayed for lunch. It went on. So it was the last of that kind of great apprentice sort of teaching, mm. which is no longer with us. Mm. Oh, except maybe... Uh, in very strange and odd occasions. Mm. Uh, now people teach by the clock. It goes one hour, ding, that's it. Mm. The Sydney Con now, lessons are 45 minutes. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yes. uh, and also, we're all stuck with our university semester length. And, you know, it's a kind of fraud, really. Um you, most universities teach for oh, 13 weeks, something like that. So let's say it's 13. It's a bit less than some others. So two semesters a year, right? Mm. So you're pretending that in 26 weeks you can train a musician, i.e. you're being taught for half the year. Mm. It's complete nonsense. Can't be done. <clears throat> and what happens is that uh, students have to find money to pay for lessons to go on longer than that. Mm-hmm. And because conservatoria in Australia used to be freestanding institutions and the semesters were much longer because they were training musicians, now they've all been gobbled up by the universities. And so we have to adopt the university calendar. Look, this might work fine if you're studying economics or whatever. Mm. It doesn't work if you're studying music. Mm. The other thing that is a problem to most tertiary institutions is the one-to-one thing. Yeah, definitely. They don't like that. Mm. Uh, they refuse to accept that. 
And there's a constant battle to try and prove that it's the only way it can be done. Well, we've been doing it for 500 years, mm -hmm. so if it was easier, we would have found a way. Yeah, no, I think that... I can t well, it can't be done the other no. way. And the one-to-one -one contact, I think, is extremely important because you're learning more than just something that's written up on a, on a blackboard, you know. It's, it's um, yeah. you know, you're, you're lear again, learning about life as well at the same time. It's, yeah. Well, the bond between yourself and the teacher is something that you never get in a classroom. Mm, mm. Uh, it's really powerful. Mm. And uh, proof of that is you ask any established teacher and they'll tell you that um, the students come back to them as long as they're about. Mm, mm. Uh, just today I had an email from a student who I taught in Brisbane in 1961 mm. she's now an old lady living in England mm. and she still treats me like the master as it were yeah of course yeah and you've got a bond <laughs> you got a you got a lifelong bond there with somebody yes well that's yeah. what happens with mm. that style of teaching mm. uh, and uh, you also have uh, interests in the esoteric and mythology uh, did they run alongside your studies as well, or is this something that came separately? It uh, began, I'm hesitating here, because yes, it began separately mm -hmm. in general, mm -hmm. but right from the start there were connections, of course. If you're studying with a Russian teacher, you'll be given the music of Scraven, Scriven was a theosophist. Uh, all of his late works are inspired by theosophical writing. Mm -hmm. So if you want to learn something about Scriven, mm -hmm. you'll start reading theosophy. There are other examples like that. In my case, I began, I suppose, in a very strange way, by reading a book by H.G. Wills called The Science of Life. Mm -hmm. And it's a fairly dry term about science, mm -hmm. about the history of science. And then at the very end, after you've plowed through hundreds of pages, there was a section called Borderland Science. And it had to do with um, spiritualism, theosophy, accounts uh, of um, mediums at work, all that. It was tucked away at the end of the book, but I remember thinking, wow. And I was intrigued by this. So at first, I'd come to it as a kind of anti-establishment, uh, anti-religion, anti-just about everything. My grandfather was orthodox, you know, and I rebelled against all that. But I remember reading the wills, and it kind of drew me back in a very strange way to that same world in a, in a roundabout fashion. Mm. Uh, and I began reading about psychic, um, well, they call it paranormal now, whatever name you want to give about those sciences yeah. and accounts. And then 
almost by osmosis, it drifted into things like mythology, mm -hmm. um, because a lot of folk cultures tied to that. And folk music interested me as well as a musician. Mm. So it came from a number of angles. Mm. As well as that, the man I went to study with, Egon Petri, was a great disciple of a composer named Ferruccio Bozzoni, who was a mystic. Mm -hmm. And so this injection of mysticism came a second time. I'd had one shot from Scraven, and the other one came from Bozzoni. Um, so there were a number of factors feeding into it, as it were. Uh, and in the end, it, it began to absorb me more and more. Uh, and I found over the years that ritual began to interest me mm. because ritual is almost always ac accompanied by music, one way or another. It doesn't matter whether you're in a Orthodox church or whether you're in some sort of um, shamanistic ritual. There's always music there. Yeah, yeah. And so the power of music to evoke whatever it is is palpable. So mm. it was inevitable, I guess, that I began to uh, experiment with that and be interested in that. And eventually it started becoming more and more dominant. And so now, if you say to me, write a sonata, which is an abstract concept, it's just a structural kind of construct, uh, well, yes, I might go away and write the sonata for you, but usually there'll be something lurking behind mm. it of what we discussed. Mm. Something of that type was feeding it. Yeah, it uh, actually leads directly onto our next question that you do draw heavily on on Western esoteric tradition, uh, the Kabbalah and uh, the Golden Dawn in your compositions. Uh, would you like to talk to a bit more about that? Yes, of course. Um, um, the Kabbalah, which uh, I probably used in its more most overt form, was in a huge opera called The Golem, which is a legend. Uh, so you see, again, combinations. Uh, it's interesting that uh, when The Golem was done, premiered at the Sydney Opera House, there was a contingent of rabbis from Melbourne who came. Mm -hmm. I, they didn't say anything to me. I never met them. But I heard afterwards that they didn't fully approve because you're not supposed to do this kind of thing. The Kabbalah is studied, but it's only for a closed circle of people. And it's not meant to be talked about in public, as it were, mm. let alone set to music. I also did very various inexcusable things. The Kabbalah teaches that there are 72 secret names of God. Well, some of them I had the choir singing. And you see, that would be regarded as blasphemy. <laughs> so... <laughs> So this is a kind of talent for mm. stirring the pot. <laughs> and it's the same with other traditions. As you know, uh, 
the the holy men don't like you messing around with this because they feel they are the intermediaries and the authority between yourself and God. Mm. And you, what you're doing is bypassing them. Mm. And so they're in danger in their jobs if everyone does that. Mm. <laughs> so they don't care for that either. Of course, of course. Uh, which to someone with my temperament is only a, a kind of reward. <laughs> 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 Some healthy rebellion. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yes, the Kabbalah is one of the traditions. And, of course, I knew about it because of my background. But uh, the reading uh, led me to all sorts of other, um, uh, either uh, practices or uh, uh, religious beliefs or shamanistic practices, or hidden uh, magical societies. Um, what happened was, with the Golden Dawn, um, I became interested in that because I love Yeats, mm -hmm. the poetry, and he was, of course, a member, and wrote about the Golden Dawn, and so it was natural that I began reading the literature and finished up writing um, a work for piano called The Golden Dawn. Mm. And that was initially done as um, a ritual, which always appeals to me. Mm. <laughs> There's a Russian teacher in Adelaide, and I was asked to write a piece, well, for her birthday or some such occasion. And so I discovered who her most important students were. And each movement of this Golden Dawn Suite is dedicated to a different student. Mm. Anyway, when it was performed, what we did was we had a grand piano on stage. I had a strong spotlight into the innards of the piano which is usually brass, you know, so it kind of glows yeah. a bit like a, a, a pot of some kind. Yeah. And all the students were on stage sitting round it, all dressed in black, mm -hmm. and one would turn pages for the other, and they just moved round in a circle as we went through all the movements. So it was theatrical and ritualistic mm -hmm. as well as musical. Mm. Uh, and that's the way it's always been done. Although now, later this year, it's going to be done in Moscow by one pianist. Mm -hmm. So it'll be different, obviously, yeah. uh, because that element will be taken out of it. Yeah. Yeah. But originally, that's how it was conceived. So you could almost say it was a, a partly a perf performance art piece more than just an auditory experience then. Yes, it was, mm. because it was theatrical, mm. and uh, there was almost the witch's brew there in the mm. piano. <laughs> Pianos are usually black, yes, right? Yes. They're dressed in black. <laughs> They're circling around it to take their place on the hot seat. Someone else is turning the pages. So, yes, it was ritualistic. Yeah. And the audience was requested not to clap between movements. Ah. 
How do you how do you find uh, in, in this in this generation uh, or you know this age uh, when it comes to to music and and this kind of thing is is there a sense that maybe younger people need a need a bit more um, visual stimulation um, to keep engaged in this kind of stuff at all? It's a very visual age, of mm. course, mm. Uh, and uh, I know that. Uh, the picture seems to be important. Mm. Um, just a few weeks ago, I finished making a recording of some music I'd done for Oberlin Piano. Now, as a musician, really, the sound is foremost for me. Mm. So we went into a studio and recorded the stuff. Um, and it'll appear in due course uh, on SoundCloud or whatever. Mm. But uh, I remember in my ignorance, saying, what about uh, putting it on, on YouTube or something like that? And I was told, well, you need pictures for YouTube. <laughs> and I, I got away with it once because they flashed the image of the music yeah. on the screen as it was unfolding. But um, this is visually fairly uninteresting. I'm sitting at the piano. And there's a guy playing the oboe. Well, that's it, visually. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so we didn't have any pictures. It'll be on some non-pictorial thing. But you're right. And music itself is also going through what uh, I call lollipop phase at the moment, especially in Australia. Yeah. We're writing lollipops, lollipops because attention spans are down to hell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's almost like we can't concentrate for more than four minutes mm. because we're waiting for the commercials. Mm. Uh, and so uh, a lot of music being played now is really lightweight. Yeah. And repetitious, uh, I find. There's not a lot... Uh, Mm. Yeah, uh, going on, it would be the same, same, you know, words or, or, or sounds repeated for approximately three minutes. Yes, you're <laughs> absolutely right. And it's, uh, it's pretty mm. at best. Mm. <laughs> uh, at worst, well, we won't go there. <laughs> uh, so uh, audiences, unfortunately, now think that new music is like that. So... I've been countering that all my life, basically, mm. because I was brought up in a very classical way. And lately, my own pieces have been getting longer and longer and more and more difficult to listen to. Mm. Um, so my attitude is, if you don't like it, that's fine. Mm. Uh, uh, if you think it's too long, that's fine. It's not my problem, it's yours. <laughs> I'm sure they're fantastic. I, I do know that there is a bit of a backlash to that, what you call lollipop music, um, and a breakdown of, of music and sound as well in this in this day and age as well, where people are sort of really breaking down ideas of structure and and even what even is music in the first place, and, and also uh, starting to elongate things again, so it's no longer yeah. just three minutes, but something might well just go for half an hour and can be quite challenging to listen to for sure but it's also quite f refreshing and interesting i think 
as well? Well, yes. Uh, art should be challenging. Mm. It should be challenging for the composer, and it should certainly be challenging for the listener. Mm -hmm. If you go to a concert to be comforted by going to a concert and hearing the Moonlight Sonata played the same way as you've heard on your CD, mm. I don't think it's fulfilling any function at all, mm -hmm. other than you sinking back into your seat and closing your eyes and thinking what might be for dinner. Um, I think it was uh, Varese, the French composer, who said that tradition is all very well, but one doesn't doesn't have to lie down in it. Mm. It shouldn't be a comfortable thing. Mm -hmm. It should be out there grabbing you mm. and saying, here, here's something to worry you a bit. Yeah, yeah. That's how we, how we learn and grow. Yes, that's right. Uh, because actually life is like that. It's mm. not lying back in, uh, on a cushion. <laughs> There's something coming out at you. And so that's what interests me most. Mm. Uh, a friend of mine, I remember an American composer, whose name won't mean anything to you, uh, Jonathan Kramer. Anyway, um, he said to me that when he composes, he's dead now, but he would write pieces, and when it came to where he should have ended, he would go on after that. <laughs> In other words... He was pushing it, yeah. and the audience were never sure where it was going to actually yeah. stop, yeah. and it would end. And as uncomfortable as that would have been, it also would have been very that, exciting. That's right. <laughs> um, I just, lately, I, I need more space. I've always mm -hmm. written large-scale pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done kiddie pieces as well, don't get me wrong, but... Um, when you talked about long pieces, I'm trying to think one piece, which I wrote for Michael Kieran Harvey, the great Australian pianist. It lasts about 80 minutes. And um, when he first played it, he required a pit stop, I remember. Mm. But now he, he does it straight through. He has to run out and, and get a smoke after it, but... But uh, And he's cut a few minutes off. Mm. So his aim now is to play it and chop a minute off it here or there. Mm. Uh, and the piece I'm doing now, currently, uh, is for Roger Woodward, another great Australian pianist. It'll be mm, 45, 50, mm. somewhere around there. Mm. I guess that's it uh, for, for, for the musicians actually playing the pieces to keep into consideration that maybe something for four hours long straight might be a bit difficult for them to actually perform. <laughs> well, there's a physical challenge and a mental one. Mm. Yeah, you've got to be able to concentrate mm. for that amount of time. Mm. It's very tiring. Mm. Yeah, I bet. And I can tell you that. <laughs> I've played the Bazzoni Concerto, which is a kind of Mount Everest for pianists, that takes oh, about 70 minutes. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, you know that you've yeah. done it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, about a work that you did called The Golem. Would you like to talk a bit more about that one? Uh, the Golem is a, 
Jewish legend from Prague mm -hmm. from the Middle Ages. Uh, the legend is that the Jews who were living in a ghetto were constantly persecuted. And um, their rabbi at that time, a famous rabbi and great scholar, a man called Rabbi Lowe, L-O-E-W, I guess, in English, um, knew the, the ritual and the, the words to make a golem. A golem is um, an artificial being. It's a kind of early version of Frankenstein, if you like. Uh, and so it's made from the mud of the river Moldau, which is in Prague, where the ghetto was. And the legend is that he made a golem and he infused it with life uh, by inscribing on the forehead mm. um, a magic word. And the golem then uh, fulfilled its function protecting the ghetto. But what went wrong was that the golem, over the course of his fairly short existence, began to acquire human characteristics, which uh, was a no-no, of course. It began to show curiosity, uh, intelligence, and so it started to shift from being a robot to a kind of, well, today we'd call it artificial intelligence. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, and so in the end, there's a long series of tangled events. Uh, and in fact, he falls in love with the rabbi's daughter. Not a good move, I would have thought. But anyhow, in the end, he had to be reduced back to dust from where he came. And that was done, again, by a ritual ceremony, uh, incantations going anti-clockwise instead of clockwise, and rubbing out one letter from the forehead. So the word which meant life, when you take the one letter out, it meant death. Ah. And so that was it. So the opera is about that, ah. about this long um, story. And of course, it's shot through with magic yeah. uh, and all the ritual accompanying it. The legend is that the golem, after he dies, was taken up to the attic of the old new synagogue in Prague, where it's supposed to be to this day. Um. <laughs> when I was in Prague last, my wife is Czech, you know, and so we, we go there quite often. I thought I'd be funny and went, we went to the old new synagogue. And I said I wanted to go to the attic. And the, they were aghast and said, why do you want to go there? I said, I want to see if the golem's still there. And very earnestly, the guide started explaining to me that it was a legend. It wasn't as though I was some sort of idiot. Uh, and I said, yes, but last week I read that the student had climbed up the pipe, the rain pipe, to have a look in the attic, and he fell to his death. The pipe gave way, which is actually true. Ooh. 
So I I want to know why he wanted to go to the attic. I was just being sort of deliberately naive and stupid. I didn't make it to the attic. In the end, they flatly refused. <laughs> so you might still be there. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe that's why you were refused so adamantly. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that's what the legend says. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. I think um, there's a few few stories like that in in I mean quite you know different but similar that that are artificially bringing something to life you know making it out of you know mud or sticks or whatever materials yes. and then then giving that 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 being life and then this you know then it becomes a bit too yeah like the Frankenstein story becomes a bit too yes. human for humans. I don't know whether Mary Shelley knew about golems or not, but her story is very similar. Mm. And Frankenstein, who was, of course, the the doctor, not the monster, yes, yes, of course. Um, is Rabbi Lowe. It's the same. To this day, if you ever visit Prague and you go to the old Jewish cemetery, Rabbi Lowe's tombstone is very prominent. And people to this day leave little pebbles on it. Mm. Because this is like, leaving some people even write something on a piece of paper and put a pebble mm. on it and so they believe that the rabbi hears their their wish so to speak mm. uh, uh, and the cemetery if you've never been there it's incredibly um, atmospheric mm. um, the jews were given this small plot of land and told that That's it. There's no, you're not going to get any more. And so they had to work out a way to bury people efficiently. Mm. So this is a very Jewish solution. They bury them standing up. Huh. Well, it takes yeah. less space, doesn't it? I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that would be true. <laughs> well, uh, so the tombstones there are right next to each other. And it goes back to the oh, 15th century, so it's been there for a while. The old new synagogue where these events were supposed to mm. have occurred uh, is the oldest uh, continuing serving synagogue in the world. It's been operating for a thousand years now. That's a long time. Uh, and ironically, um, the ghetto was left untouched right through the Second War. Mm. Hitler wanted it left because he was going to show the world that he treated Jews just fine. Right. So, uh, so the ghetto is like it was then, mm. for all the wrong reasons, of mm. course. Mm. But it's very beautiful, and you enter it, and you're suddenly in a medieval city. Yeah. Uh, so if you've never been to Prague, oh, I recommend it. Oh. Maybe, yeah, definitely. <laughs> It's not a big tourist attraction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'd be quite a fascinating to go see a place like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, you uh, are going to uh, have a, a piece on in Canberra in February, and I'd really like to talk about that with you. Um, uh, it has uh, references to um, Enochian pieces, Would you yes. like to tell the audience about that one? Well, um, there's one 
which is directly related to John Dee and Elizabeth I's magician and astrologer and probably spy as well. Um, it's called the Enochian Sonata. It's a piece for two cellos and piano. And what I did there was use some imagery from the so-called um, uh, seances that uh, Dee conducted and the records of those seances from his medium, Kelly. Uh, very detailed accounts were kept. And so this discussion of either names or places or numbers, which numbers are always good for a musician. Um, and so uh, I thought, yeah, there's a piece lurking in here somewhere. So the knock-in piece draws on some of the imagery and also some of the uh, information, if I can call it that, um, to build a piece of music. Um, the angelic language, which is what a knock-in is supposed to be, um, was given in the form of magic squares. And so reading the squares creates all sorts of possible messages and meanings. Uh, and I just dipped into that to create a piece of music. I mean, that's one example of how you can actually take this kind of tradition and milk it for in whatever way you wish uh, to get a, a sound result. Mm. Uh, it's not necessarily because the angels that spoke to Dee talked about music or composition. I just took liberties with the information. Mm. And so that's called an Enochian Sonata. Mm. Um, another piece uh, drew on Lovecraft, the fantasy writer, mm. who is regarded as a kind of heir to Edgar Allan Poe. And he talks in many of his um, short stories about a mythical book called the Necronomicon. Uh, and again, it's the book doesn't really exist, although various people claim to have seen it and published accounts of it, including details of what's in it and so on. Yeah. Look, to me, it doesn't matter whether it's real or not, mm. because one of the accounts triggered something in my head. And so I wrote a piece called Necronomicon, mm. which took the titles of the supposed chapters from this book and made pieces of music. That's for clarinet and piano. Mm. And it's subtitled 18 Aphorisms because that account of the Necronomicon had 18 chapters in it. So sometimes, whether it's totally fanciful or half fanciful, it's just for someone like a, a composer, it's just grist to the mill. And I find, because I read a lot of what Gwen Howard, the poet, used to call my spooky library, uh, she wrote the libretto for the golem. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, 
So I read something from my spooky library, and I know that something's going to happen when sounds start up in my head. Mm. And that's how all these pieces begin. Uh-huh. I don't often relate this because I wonder whether someone one day will send the men in the white suits for me. <laughs> but uh, literally, that's what occurs. Yeah. Uh, a sentence or a paragraph or a description yeah. triggers something in my stupid head and I start hearing music. Oh. And so then I think, oh, well, that's for free, so I'm going to follow it. Yeah. So a lot of the pieces, that's how they happen. Mm. It's from reading certain kinds of literature which kickstart the process. Mm. And sometimes it's fantasy literature. Um, there's a short story by Ambrose Bierce called um, The City of Carcosa. And I have a piano piece called that. Uh, again, same thing. While reading it, I was inspired somehow. Yeah. Uh, where from, I don't know, but something started up in my head. Yeah. And then the trick is to capture it yeah. before it vanishes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so so how, does, how does it start up in your head? Like, is, it, is there an instrument starts playing or how? how I actually it... start hearing, yes, it's usually an instrument mm. or a color. Uh, or an idea for a structure. Uh, it can be a number of things, but it's enough to trigger a piece. Yeah. Uh, one piece of mine uh, happened because I was reading a poem about a lotus flower unfolding, and somehow that triggered something. Mm. So I wrote a piece where there's a simple little piano figure which keeps getting longer and longer, and then a line appears over it. So to me, this was representing the lotus yeah. unfolding. And I call the piece Lotus. Yeah. I've never actually sought to hide the sources of all these pieces. I don't see why one should. Yeah. Uh, some of my colleagues say, oh, you should just... Uh, keep that to yourself. I'm not sure why, because mm. I think they think that it might present me as some sort of nutcase. But I don't care because I think I am a nutcase, so it's fine. <laughs> um, musicians almost by definition are nutcase. <laughs> um, so they wanted me to give it titles like Blob 1, Blob 2, or whatever you want to conjure up. I prefer to, Necronomicon is a good title. Mm. Uh, yeah. What's wrong with it? And, and it sounds like what, what, you're, what you're doing is you're actually retelling these stories or ideas. You're just telling them in, in a, a different kind of way. You're not using words but sounds, much like a visual artist will not use words, but they'll use paint and, and paint a picture of it. It's, it's, the, it's, it's telling the same story. It's, it's still communicating those same things. So I think to have mm. homage to, the, to these sources is, gives people context as well. Well, yes, and even just the title, um, it might inspire someone in the audience to go and find out what yeah. the title means yeah. or the name of a movement. Yeah. Um, so 
they might learn something. You never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> um, Sometimes it comes from other sources. I've pieces from Hindu mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can, it varies. Mm. It depends what what's my fancy at the moment mm. and what seizes my own imagination. Mm. I just seem to need something like that to kickstart the piece. Once you've got the raw idea, then the music part takes over. Mm-hmm. The composition then is constructed according to sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hate using the word laws, but sound principles because I'm then making music out of it. Mm -hmm. Music, ironically, by itself, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a sound. Mm -hmm. So if you hit a drum, well, it's just someone hitting a drum. The sound of the drum doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. If I then call it something like shamanic dance, I've given it a context. Mm -hmm. And then the audience is forced to think of it in a different way. Mm. Mm. And sound is a very emotional medium. That's one of the strongest things it seems to do is to to invoke an emotional response. It's very powerful. Mm. And the power of music is that the same sounds will mean something different to every listener. Because it's a total abstraction, uh, it's cooking in the mind of the listener. Unless you're setting words and Mm. writing songs. But otherwise, it'll mean whatever it means to you when you listen. And so it could be a vast array of different things. Mm. Well, um... Could, yeah, uh, you mentioned that you, you might have some things up on, online, um, but also would you be able to tell any listeners where we could find some of your, some of your pieces and, and some of your works in case they would like to follow it up? Well, you could, you could probably, I was going to say I'm represented both as composer and as pianist. Mm-hmm. So... You could have a look on the dreaded YouTube. You could (laughs) have a look on Facebook and see there'll be stuff about me and about Mm -hmm. what I've been doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think uh, somewhere there there's a list of works uh, and a homepage or so. So I've written a lot of music. because I've lived a long life and I've always been productive. So the number of pieces, I don't know how many there are. When I began, I put Opus 1. It was a violin piece. There was never an Opus 2 because it sounded too much like a countdown. And I was (laughs) well aware that some composers when they started numbering their orchestral works, there's a great superstition about the number nine, for instance. Oh, really? When you come to number nine, chances are you'll drop dead. Really? So Beethoven, Mahler, um, Bruckner. Anyway, oh. 
So anyway, mm -hmm. I didn't want to enter into that kind of silliness. Mm -hmm. And even prolific composers, round about 200, they kind of cark it. So I thought, I don't want to know. Yeah. So there are no numbers. <laughs> so I don't know how many pieces I've written. It's a lot. <laughs> you have it's, a few pieces. It's in the hundreds. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you and you have have some some pieces being performed coming up as well in Australia. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well? They're performed mm. all over the place. Mm. My big um, news this year is a five-day Sitsky Fest in Moscow. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, it's my 85th birthday oh. coming up. And to my surprise, I got an email from the Conservatory of Music there in Moscow, mm. and they're devoting a five-day, they're calling it a festival, well, uh, of my music. So I'll be going there, oh. and I hope they won't try to interview me in Russian because that's very lame now. It's too long ago. But it's interesting that they see me, you see, as a, a Russian mystic composer like Scraven, there have been others, Vishnagratsky or Bukhov, there are a number of them. And so there I fit very comfortably in their minds because they don't have a problem with a composer having these kind of interests. Mm. I'm not sure here whether we have that established. Mm. So I think here I'm still seen as a bit of a fruitcake, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine, I've got no problem. Oh. <laughs> you might be selling yourself short. I think that most people who, who consider themselves as fruitcakes are often brilliant people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, would you like any words of wisdom that you would like to tell the audience? Any Anything that that you could could provide for people? Well, I think the one lesson I've learned is that you have to believe in what you're doing. And even if everyone else is telling you you're crazy, you have to stick with it. Mm. Um, the other thing is that there's out there, there's no limit to what can stimulate your imagination. And so if you think that everything has been done, everything has been heard, you couldn't be more wrong. Um, it's unlimited. Even the scales that we use in music and have been using for, uh, well, hundreds of years, well, they're not limiting either. Because now with digital technology, we can have scales of a different kind. Mm. We can have, it's not necessary to have seven notes to the octave. Mm. You can have 13 or 21 or whatever number you fancy. Mm. So if you think that composition has run its course and the only thing you can do is repeat stuff that's been done before, you couldn't be more wrong because there's totally unexplored worlds of sound out there. Mm. And don't waste your time sounding like someone else. You have to find your own sound. Yeah, beautiful. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And yes, I do think you have a very fascinating life. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Amy. It's been lovely talking to you as well. And very easy. Thank oh, you. You're welcome. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed the show. None of the opinions expressed by hosts or guests reflect the policies of OTO Australia, its members or officers. This is your host, Sora Mer. Love is the law, love under will. <laughs>